If you'll turn in your Bibles to the book of Hosea, I've been praying and seeking the Lord's will on what to uh, share with you on Wednesday night, and I believe this is of the Lord as I've been looking at this and thinking about this. And so what I intend to do, Lord willing, and as long as the Lord is, is in it, you know, we, we did this with Proverbs for several years, and some of you may have forgotten or didn't know that. We'd always come back to Proverbs. But what I would like to do is spend some time looking at the minor prophets. Okay, you know how sometimes we'll say, turn to the book of Hosea or the book of Jonah or the book of this or that, and, and everybody kind of scratched their head. Now, where's that? We need to be acquainted with the minor prophets, just like we do what's called the major prophets. Now, but them being referred to as the minor prophets does not mean that their message is any less important. As a matter of fact, when I was thinking about this, this is what came to mind, looking at the minor prophets have major messages. They are very important in their messages. But the reason they're called the minor prophets is because they're not as long as, say, the book of Isaiah or the book of Jeremiah or the book of Ezekiel. And they occur within, relatively within the same time periods, and there are 12 of them. Don't be afraid that there's 12. <laughs> they're all listed together, and some of them are pretty much sequential and some are not. They kind of mix in and mix out. They, you know, they're around the same times or whatever. But the first one that has traditionally been listed is Hosea. And from Hosea, you go all the way with 12 minor prophets all the way to Malachi. So we want to start with Hosea. And I ask you to pray for me because I've never undertaken to actually look at multiple books. I've done individual books of the Bible and we've gone through them and the Lord has seemed to have blessed that. But I don't know if we'll take two messages to cover a book like Hosea that has 14 chapters. I know there's a few like Obadiah and some others that are just a few pages that, that won't, probably won't take but one message to cover. But Hosea is the one we want to start with, and it's the first of the 12 minor prophets. So if you want to look at it like this, we want to get to know these prophets better. We want to get to know their books better, and maybe it'll help us remember, me included, where they are uh, when we go to look at them. So as we consider Hosea, let me give you a little bit of a background about who Hosea was and when he was a prophet. Okay, who was he? He was a prophet in the days when Israel and Judah were still in existence. You know, at the beginning of the nation of Israel, it was just Israel. And then in the days after David and Solomon, it split into two. The northern kingdom, the larger kingdom with 10 or so tribes was Israel. The southern kingdom, which becomes the focus, more of the focus as time goes on because that's where Bethlehem is, that's where Jerusalem is. The southern kingdom was Judah. And of course, you understand the significance of Judah because that is the tribe from which Jesus comes. So what you have here in, say, we'll say from a thousand B.C. and more like 900 B.C., but about a thousand years before Jesus, you have these two kingdoms, 900 B.C. You have these two kingdoms, and they, for the most part, exist in relative harmony. There's a few times when they get crossed up with each other, and there's a few times that they have some bad interaction, but for the most part, they kind of leave each other alone. And the northern kingdoms of Israel never had a good king, never. Now, the southern kingdoms of Judah had a few good kings. You had men, started out with men like David and Solomon, and then eventually you have uh, some men like Uzziah and Josiah and Hezekiah. But for the most part, 
both of these nations, in the majority of the time, did not have very good kings. They would go off into idolatry, and we're going to speak to that here in just a moment. But keep this in mind, that Hosea, which, whose name also is the, the name for Joshua, and it's also the name for Jesus. Okay, In the New Testament, that's how you would say the name Hosea. In the Old Testament, it was Yeshua, or Joshua, or Hosea. And he was the last of the prophets that God raised up in the northern kingdom of Israel. He was the last one. The northern kingdom of Israel passes off the scene uh, a lot sooner than the southern kingdom of Judah goes into captivity in the days of Babylon. So in the days of Israel and Judah, Hosea was raised up as a prophet. And the legend of the Jews, the legend of Israel, and some of the writers like Josephus and others of the historians say that he prophesied or preached for 90 years. If you read what it says in our introduction, and let's go ahead and read that, Hosea 1 and 1. It says, The word of the Lord that came unto Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of, listen to the kings now, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. That's four kings of Judah who reigned over a long period of time. And in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. So if, you'll, if you've got some time to kill and you want to do, I think it's interesting, and you don't want to do an interesting study, or you can just probably Google it and find it just like that, you can see how these kings overlap. And you can see that some of these kings reigned for very long times. And if you do the math on that, Hosea had to at least prophesied for practically 70 years, 69 or 70 years. So if that's the case, and when we read what we read here in the first chapter of Hosea, that Hosea is commanded to marry someone, we know he's of marrying age, which probably would have been 20 years old. So if you do the math on that, he lived well into his hundreds, and he prophesied, the legend has it, that he prophesied for 90 years. We know he at least prophesied for around 70. <laughs> so can you imagine? And, and then on top of that, prophesying in the nation of Israel, <laughs> which was in gross idolatry against the commandments of God. So he's primarily focused on everything he speaks about. He mentions Judah, but his message is primarily to Israel. Okay, and by the way, you say, well, is he really that important? He is heavily quoted in the New Testament. You, I'm going to let you go search that out because I figured this will take a couple messages. And if you, if you search that out, you'll come back and you'll say, oh, I didn't realize he was quoted that much. It's most notably, I'll just give you a hint. There's a very important quote by Jesus himself where he says, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. That's a direct quote from Hosea. And there's some other ones. Some of the younger guys who I uh, get together with and do Bible studies with from time to time, and, and they get sick of me saying, as the stars of the sky and as the sands of the sea are the people of God. But you guys are not going to forget that, are you? <laughs> That's how many people God's got. You know, stars of the sky, sands of the sea. Some of that comes from Hosea. Okay? He was a contemporary with... Isaiah, who was in the southern kingdom, and he was also a contemporary with Micah, who was also in the southern kingdom, and he was a contemporary, most likely, with a fellow named Amos, who was going to be a really interesting prophet to look at when we finally get to Amos as one of the 12 minor prophets. As I said, it's believed that he was the last prophet in Israel, and just as a side note, remember that during the time that Hosea prophesied, a little town a thousand or more miles away, a couple thousand miles away, was founded. The little town of Rome by the two brothers was founded, as, as history goes. Uh, the, the, 
nation that eventually, the empire that eventually would be in absolute, total, chokehold power of the known world at that time when our Savior comes into that political climate, okay? So just as a side note, Rome's not much of a focus until you go about five or six or seven hundred years, four or five hundred years after its founding. So there's a problem in, in Israel. There's also a problem in Judah, but the focus of Hosea is Israel. And look at verse 2. It says, The beginning of the word of the Lord by Hosea, and the Lord said to Hosea, Go take unto thee a wife of whoredoms and children of whoredoms, for the land hath committed great whoredom departing from the Lord. Now this is some of the most startling scripture that's been kicked around and discussed in theological circles for ever since it's been around. You know, how could a, a perfect and just God command one of his children to go and take a wife of, of whoredoms, a wife who would be unfaithful, knowing that she would be unfaithful? I'm just going to try to keep it real simple because I don't know about you, but I need it real simple. First of all, you remember that God will never do anything to violate his own character or nature. He will never do anything that will condone or use sin in any way whatsoever because he's just too holy. He doesn't have to. You know, when he raises up a nation like Babylon or Assyria that whips his people like a father taking a switch and spanking their child, the Lord is just in doing that. And He's not responsible for the way that that nation of Assyria or Babylon exceeds the limits for which He has set. Where they rape and pillage and destroy and all the things that they do that goes beyond what He has authorized or raised them up to do. Now, a lot of that is beyond our comprehension in, in the terms of you know, how can He be just and that not commit sin. It's very simple. God will never violate His nature because He doesn't have to. So it's been kicked around, as I said. Let's keep it simple. It's been kicked around, you know, trying to, trying to dig deep into and ply the, the character of God in order to understand why God would do this. I think it's very simple. And you could look at it a couple ways. One way you could look at it is that this woman that Hosea takes and marries, it's very possible that she was not... This was her first marriage, and this, she was not unfaithful prior to the marriage, you see? And yet she did that and went that way after they were married. It's very possible that's the case. You know, and in the omniscience and all-knowing ability of God, you know, that doesn't bother me. That doesn't bother me at all. God knowing something is going to happen does not mean that He causes it, Right? I mean, that's just that simple. I know that World War II happened. I know the Civil War happened, but I didn't cause it. You know, God can know something happens, but He doesn't cause it. So that's very simple. She might have been just an ordinary person or, you know, someone that had not done any of these things. He marries her, and then she goes off and she does what she does, which we'll read about. Or God is just and holy, and He's right in saying, go and marry this woman who is an unfaithful person in expectation that she would repent from her, her unfaithfulness. You get that? You know, is that not repentance? To hope for the best, prepare for the worst? <laughs> That's the way we all ought to be. We ought to be that, with, we ought to have, be that gracious with each other in terms of 
of getting along with each other and loving each other. Hope for the best, but prepare for the worst. You know, it's very likely that I'll say something that will offend you at some point. It's very likely that I might preach something that you say, well, that's stepping on my toes. Well, you know, what's the purpose of preaching other than to step on your toes and, and get at your heart? You know, God intended it to be that way. I, it's kind of funny how people say, I appreciate Brother Todd's prayer, but people say, I can't believe that preacher was, you know, getting after me today when the preacher doesn't have a clue. You know, really, usually what's going on in your own personal life or what you're struggling with. I can't believe that preacher was getting after me. That's what God designed preaching for. <laughs> was to get after you. <laughs> and once it comforts you, comforts you, my people, for sure. But also instruct and rebuke and direct. That's what God's called preachers for. He reads your mail. He knows what's going on in your life. And he may burden the preacher to preach on something that directly affects a temptation or an issue that you have. That's the providence and the glory of God. Instead of saying, I can't believe that preacher was stepping on my toes and read, you know, doing, said what he said, you need to say, praise God that God cares enough about me that he'd burden the man to preach on that. <laughs> so that's a totally different way to look at it. And Anyway, there's a couple different ways to look at that that in no way violate the character of God. God's not telling this man, now I want you to go out and sin by marrying this woman. That is the farthest thing from what God is saying. But it is very interesting. It is startling. And Hosea has a unique ministry that like, really, the only, I was thinking when I was reading this, you know, the suffering that Hosea goes through, you can read about what, what happens to him. And, and there's some other situations that the preachers get into, like Jeremiah getting lowered down into the pit and, and sinking down in the mud and having to be saved from that. I mean, there's some terrible things that happen. But this man was probably married to this woman for 60, 70, maybe 80 years. And to think about the, the pain and the suffering that he went through at the hands of this unfaithful woman. And the point of the whole thing is this, that God is, is using that as an example to explain the suffering that his own nation has put him through because they're an unfaithful nation. You see... A wife, a mother, is compared to the nation, you see? And it's like God's wife, you know, the mother of his children, you see? So God says, Go and marry this woman. I got to move along, or we're going to spend like 10 messages on this. So he went and he took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, which conceived and bare him a son. Now notice the language right there. He married Gomer, and, and that's another name like. Oh, goodness, Jezebel, you know, that lives in infamy in one sense because of the bad things that she did. So he marries Gomer, and notice it says she conceived and bare him a son, bare Hosea a son. And now look at how the Lord tells him to name these children. The Lord said unto him, Call his name Jezreel for yet a little while, and I will avenge the blood of Jezreel upon the house of Jehu. You know, these names of these children have great significance. And I will cause to cease the kingdom of the house of Israel. The Lord says this boy's name is going to signify that Israel's days are numbered. <laughs> so I'd like to see that little fella coming. Reckon he had a lot of kids that played with him. You know, here comes the end of Israel. <laughs> I mean, that's basically what he's named. And it should come to pass at that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Now watch, she conceived again and bare a daughter. Notice what was missing there. It didn't say that she bare him a daughter. It says she conceived again and she bare a daughter. This was not Hosea's daughter because she's being unfaithful. And God said unto him, Call her name Lo Ruhamah, 
for I will no more have mercy upon the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. So you reckon that little girl got some kids to play with her? Here comes Merciless. <laughs> That's basically what her name means. You say, well, you know, this is just kind of overreaching that God would use such a, you know, an all-encompassing invasive example to demonstrate what God is going through. You'll just have to take that up with God. But I can assure you that He was right in doing it. And, and the invasiveness that's taking place in this family right here, it ought to make us kind of tremble a little bit and, and think, well, does God really want to be invasive in the, the workings in, in and outs and the things that, the doings of my family? Yes, yes, He does. <laughs> he really does. Now, thankfully, God hadn't told you to name your child Merciless or the end of Israel, <laughs> you know, but God is that concerned about what's going on in your family. He does care. He watches and he sees, regardless of what Bette Midler's saying, that God's watching us from a distance. He's not watching us from a distance. He is a God at hand. He is very concerned about what's going on in the everyday lives of his children and the families of his children. He says, but I will have mercy upon the house of Judah. There's Judah mentioned. Remember, we're in Israel, the northern kingdom. And will save them by the Lord their God. And will not save them by bow, nor by sword, nor by battle, by horses or by horsemen. Now when she had weaned Lohorama, she conceived and bare a son. Did you notice that? It didn't say that she bare Hosea a son. She's been unfaithful again. Then said God, call his name Loami, for you're not my people. So here comes little not my people to play. <laughs> you got... Merciless, not my people, and the end of Israel. These are real downers, <laughs> you know. This would be like naming your, a child today Judas Iscariot or something like that, you know, or Benedict Arnold. <laughs> yet the, yet, watch this now. So here you've got little, little every time Hosea looks at um, Jezreel, he thinks of the end of Israel. Every time Hosea looks at Lo-Ruhamah, not only does he think this is not my daughter, he also thinks of God is going to be merciless on Israel because of her unfaithfulness. And then every time he looks at Loami, he thinks, you're not my people. You know, God is forsaking this nation. And he said, I will not be your God. You know why he was saying that? Because they had already, in their practices, they had already showed God that he was not their God. <laughs> you see? So God is just simply turning this back on them. Now watch the yet in verse 10. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as, what children? The sands of the sea. <laughs> what a hope God gives in the midst of an adulterous and terrible circumstance. He said, here's a little not my people, but my people shall be as the number of the sands of the sea. That's a lot of people. You ever gone to the seashore and tried to count the sands of the sea? It is impossible. You cannot do it. And that's why it's so important for us to believe the truth because the, the denominational world today, and, and again, I meant to say this to be at the beginning, but I hope by, as we look at these examples of these minor prophets and the things that they stand for and the things that they taught and the people and the nations that they dealt with, I feel like we can learn great lessons from what's going on in our nation today. You know, we're in our nation God has been dethroned in so many ways. Now, you remember, he's still on his throne, but in the minds and hearts of so many of God's people, they're afraid to talk about God in public. You know, God's been taken out of the public schools. God has been dethroned off of the Supreme Court. You know, God's not mentioned anywhere. I mean, it's just, you think about it, it it's so similar. 
It's so similar. So the number of God's children, don't you ever forget it, shall be as the sands of the sea, as the stars of the sky. Why? Because salvation is by grace. It's not by denomination or it's not by hearing the gospel. It's not by figuring out some man's plan and putting it into practice. It is by the grace of God. And that's how God can look at this terrible circumstance. And he's, God's upset. You say, well, I'm sure Hosea was upset. Even more than that, God is upset at his people. And it says, they shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. <laughs> So don't try it. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, you are not my people, there it shall be said unto them, you are the sons of the living God. Now, all of this, by the way, is some, I'm, I'm spilling the beans. You, you'll find some of this quoted over in the New Testament. And then shall the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and appoint themselves one head, and they shall come up out of the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Did you hear that? <laughs> Jezreel is the one that was the firstborn son that was actually the son of Hosea. And he says, I will avenge the blood of Jezreel upon the house uh, of Jez Jehu and will, cause, uh, and will cause to cease the kingdom of the house of Israel. The end of Israel. And here he's saying, I'm going to bring back my children. I'm going to establish that I have children as the sands of the sea and the stars of the sky. And that will be the day of Jezreel. And you know what that day was. It was a day of vengeance. It was a day of God of taking vengeance on his own son for the sins of his children. That was a great day of vengeance and wrath of God. Praise be to God, it all poured out on His Son. See, that's the day of Jezreel. And then people that were not Jews, people that were not from Israel, will be called the children of God. That's us. <laughs> so, chapter 2, we read... I want to look to verse 23, if you turn the page in chapter 2. Chapter 2 gives some very... I encourage you to go and read it. I encourage you as we look at this to read these minor prophets as we kind of skip over some of the highlights. But in chapter 2, you have where the Lord tells Hosea to ask the children to plead with the mother. How sad is that? It's so sad. To have the children go and plead with the mother. Mother, please be faithful. Mother, please don't do the things that you're doing. Because <laughs> their mother had played the harlot. And over in verse 23, we have hope given again where it says, I will sow her unto me in the earth and I will have mercy upon her that had not obtained mercy. And I will say to them which were not my people, thou art my people and they shall say, thou art my God. You know, that's also one of the, one of the names of the children, not my people. <laughs> he says, I'm going to call them my people. Even though you have ruined this great relationship that we had as a nation. And even though Gomer had ruined the relationship, could have been a great relationship between Hosea and Gomer, God says, even though you have ruined it, I'm still going to call my people my people. See? Now chapter 3 is probably even sadder than chapter 1 or 2 because this is sometime that, you know, in the future from the time when she has the children and she's unfaithful. But she apparently goes off and she is so unfaithful and she sells herself. She actually takes money for what she's doing and she goes off and she sells herself and gets into such a bad situation that they have her own, they have her auctioned as a slave because she sold herself. Verse 1, chapter 3. Then said the Lord unto me, Go yet love a woman beloved of her friend, yet an adulteress. He's talking about Gomer. You know, apparently she has left Hosea. 
and according to the love of the Lord toward the children of Israel. How about that? You say, Hosea, you know, God predicted and knew what Hosea would think. Lord, go and love this woman that has been unfaithful to me. He says, let this love that you have for her be like I have towards the children of Israel. It is an unfailing love. Let this love, according to the love of the Lord toward the children of Israel who look to other gods and love flagons of wine. So I bought her to me for 15 pieces of silver and for a homer of barley and half a homer of barley. (laughs) Can y'all picture that? How sad that is. She has left him and basically he has put her away. And so God says, go down there and buy her back. So he goes down to wherever it is that they auction off these indentured servants who have sold themselves either for this type of activity or sold themselves for servitude for, you know, as a maid or as a butler or as some type of servant or slave. And he goes down there because God tells him to go down there and he takes money with him. I wonder if he had his hood pulled over his, himself when he got down there. I'd be so embarrassed, wouldn't you? And so he goes in there where they're auctioning off these slaves because they owe money or they didn't pay back what they were supposed to pay. And there's Gomer, the mother of these three children and one of his own. And she's being auctioned. (laughs) And so he goes and he bids 15 pieces of silver. Can you picture that? You know, you've seen an auction. I'm not going to make the noises, but I can. But, you know, do we have 25? Do we have 30? Do you know we have 30? I can just see Hosea is down there, you know, Five pieces of silver. Somebody bid six. Somebody bid seven. Somebody ten. Somebody bids eleven. And most of the men just say, well, she, she's not worth any more than that. <laughs> and Hosea buys her back for 15 pieces of silver and some barley. And he takes her aside and he says to her, verse 3, he says, Thou shalt abide for me many days. Thou shalt not play the harlot, and thou shalt not be for another man. So will I also be for thee. Man, that is something, isn't it? (laughs) What a desperate man. He has bought her back from abject poverty and slavery, basically. From selling herself. And he says, I want you to stay put now. I've shown you how much I love you. I've come down here. My love is more than a physical love. My love is more than emotion. My love, I'm going to show you, is like the love that God has for His children. It is a love that cannot and will not be taken back. (laughs) But I think it's also interesting that He also says, Now behave! Is that not how God speaks to us sometimes? He's bought us back from the slave pit of abject destruction in the lake of fire. And he's got a right to say to you and to me, behave, act right, act like my child. (laughs) And and yet he doesn't say it like I just said it. He looks you in the eye (laughs) in a a spiritual sense and and, and probably with tears in his eyes and says, just follow me. Just follow me. Look what I took you from. I brought you back from the dunghill of iniquity. I brought you back from suffering in the lake of fire. I brought you back from abject unfaithfulness and adultery in a spiritual sense. Now just follow me. (laughs) That's a small price to pay when you see the great price that our Lord paid for us. Small price. I'm telling you in a greater way (laughs) because God spoke directly to Hosea. I'm telling you, Hosea had that in his heart when he looked at Gomer and he said, now, just behave. And notice, he knew human nature. He at least knew her human nature. He said, thou shalt abide for me many days. I think he already realized that this woman had such a problem that it was not going to be long before 
her wandering ways would begin again. So, notice verse 5, we have hope again. Afterward shall the children of Israel return and seek the Lord their God and David their king who had been dead for many years and shall fear the Lord and His goodness in the latter days. Have you noticed how the end of every chapter, which I know, I know that the translators put the chapter breaks in there, but at the end of every break in the chapter, we see something that's pointing to something greater. <laughs> we see He's going to call a people that were not His people. We see that the children of Israel are going to return to the Lord in a special way. It's going to be when the Lord brings them to Him through the sacrifice of Christ. And now notice, and I love chapter 4. <laughs> he says, Hear the word of the Lord, ye children of Israel, for the Lord hath a controversy with inhabitants of the land, because there is no truth, nor mercy, nor knowledge of God in the land. I think if, if a prophet were to rise up today, which we know that's not going to happen, we don't, we don't have prophets like that anymore. We now have preaching and the gift of the ministry to the New Testament church. But if a prophet were to rise up today, I think this is something that he might say to us here in America. <laughs> the Lord has a controversy against, look, the children of God. You see, he has a controversy with the children of God because there's no truth, there's no mercy, there's no knowledge of God in the land. There's a lot of busyness about religion and there's a lot of activity about religion. But where is the true knowledge of God? You see that? By swearing and lying and killing and stealing and committing adultery. Is he watching direct TV? Is he watching Fox News or CNN or MSNBC? By swearing and lying and killing and stealing and committing adultery, they break out and blood touches blood, which was a very unclean thing. Therefore shall the land mourn, and everyone that dwelleth therein shall languish with the beasts of the field and with the fowls of heaven. Yea, the fishes of the sea also shall be taken away. It's going to be so bad that, they, that, that you won't even be able to catch fish when you go fishing. The fish are even languishing. Yet let no man strive nor reprove another, for thy people are as they that strive with the priest. Therefore shalt thou fall in the day, and the prophet also shall fall with thee in the night, and I will destroy my, thy mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because thou hast rejected knowledge, I will also reject thee, that thou shalt be no priest to me, seeing thou hast forgotten the law of thy God. And here's the saddest part. I will also forget thy children. Oh Lord, help us. We've said many, many times. I've actually heard people say in the past, just not on a regular occasion, but on limited occasion. Well, you know, as long as as long as I've got what I have, well, you know, I'm not worried about that next generation. <laughs> I'm worried about three or four generations down the road. <laughs> I'm concerned about my children and my grandchildren and my great grandchildren. I pray to the good Lord that they'll still be standing in the truth when many years go by and after I'm gone from this world. I am concerned about the future. I am concerned about the children of this church and the young people of this church and the middle-aged people and the older people. You see, here God said it got so bad in the days of Israel that not only was He forsaking Israel, His nation, but He said, I'm also forsaking your children. That's heartbreaking, isn't it? Why? Because they were swearing and lying and killing and stealing and committing adultery and breaking out and blood touching blood. And they just had a bloodlust and they had drama going on all the time and finger pointing and all this different stuff. I'll tell you, if we can't relate to stuff like that, then we're just, we kind of got our head in the sand. <laughs> My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. And watch this verse 7. We're going to bring our thoughts to a close. As they were increased, so they sinned against me. 
Therefore will I change their glory into shame. They eat up the sin of my people and they set their heart on their iniquity. (laughs) You know, I just preached about the imagination of the heart of man is only evil continually. They're just coming up with new ways to sin and sin upon sin. (laughs) And there shall be like people, like priests, and I will punish them for their ways and reward them for their doings. For they shall eat and not have enough. They shall commit whoredom and shall not increase because they have left off to take heed of the Lord. Whoredom and wine and new wine take away the heart. My people ask counsel at their stocks. That's like an idol, like a stick. And their staff declareth unto them. Can you picture somebody sitting there holding a stick and going, tell me what I need to do. What? You know, a stick doesn't talk. A staff doesn't talk. An idol doesn't talk. But the Word of God talks to you. See? They ask counsel at their stocks and their staff declares it to them. For the spirit of whoredoms has caused them to err. And they have gone a whoring from under their God. This is terrible. Now here we go. Here's what I want to leave us with. It says, they sacrifice upon the tops of the mountains and burn incense upon the hills, under oaks and poplars and elms, because the shadow thereof is good. Therefore your daughters shall commit whoredom and your spouses shall commit adultery. (laughs) What's going on there? Listen, the great nations of the world have always been defined by what they worshipped. The nation of Egypt, what drove the beast of Egypt was what they believed and how they worshipped in their religious circles. The empire of Rome, Rome worshipped the state, the government. The two boys, Romulus and Remus, who founded Rome, one killed the other, of course, they were products of the state. They were products of the government. They didn't have a mother or father. They were raised by wolves. (laughs) The worship of Rome was the state. Very much like what you see in many circles in the United States of America today. The government's got all the answers. Nothing could be further from the truth. Ancient Egypt worshipped the sun god, Ra, among many, many other gods. But here's the point. God is condemning these people for their worship. Okay, so what in the world were they doing? They had adopted the nations around them, the worship, and this is the, this is the kindest way I know to put it. They worshipped reproduction. That was what drove them. They worship reproduction. So when you read, I always wondered until I dug into it and tried to figure out what's he talking about when it says they sacrifice on the tops of the mountains and burned incense under the hills, under the oaks, under the poplars, under the elms, the trees. You know, they were in these groves. They built these groves. What's wrong with, you know, with planting a grove of trees? Well, it's very wrong when you're worshiping a false god and you're worshiping reproduction. That's what was driving them. And it goes right along with what we hear about the relationship between Hosea and Gomer, Right? She was obsessed with that. She was obsessed with that type of relationship. And God is condemning His people and saying, you're going to worship reproduction. You're going to worship these things. Brothers and sisters, if we can't see how that connects to a nation that is drunk on fornication like we see today, then we're just blind. Our nation is no different than the nation of Israel and many other nations that worshipped reproduction. Y'all remember me reading you the quote from the Statler Brothers song. <laughs> you got to know the codes. GPG and R and X. You got to know. You can't take the family along unless it's the right G or maybe PG. We live in a nation that worships this type of thing. Worships fornication. Worships flesh. Worships the body. 
exposes the body on every every time you turn around. That's the nation that we live in. There was even a show on. I didn't ever watch it. There was a show on a few years ago called Californication. I'm thinking, what a, what a horrible twist on words. I hope that you can see that like the days of these minor prophets, they still have a relevant message today. Hosea still speaks to us and says, as God said, my people perish for lack of knowledge. My people are like adulterous wives or husbands who go away from me and and worship their sin. (laughs) But don't ever forget, there's always hope. There's always a Josiah. There's always a Uzziah. There's always a Hezekiah. There's always a a, a Hosea. There's always a Jonah. God love him, even though he had some problems. But there's always an Obadiah. There's always an Amos. There's always those that God is burdening to do the right thing, to follow the right way. And here we find, in the midst of God's controversy, he still had a people among Israel. He still had people among Judah. And we see that God was greatly hurt because of the way that His people were going away from Him. Just like, in a much greater way, than Hosea, who was so hurt because he's having to go down to the slave auction and buy back his own ex-wife. How embarrassing that had to be for him. And how embarrassing is it for God when He looks upon us and He looks at what we're doing and what we're watching and... This is even more startling, what we're thinking, <laughs> you see? So we're going to stop there tonight. I was hoping to get to chapter 7. Didn't quite make it there. But we're going to pause there tonight as we consider the minor prophets. Minor prophets with a major message. I think we can agree, after just a little bit that we've talked about here tonight, that Hosea was a minor prophet and he had a major message. <laughs> and it was, repent and be faithful to your God. And when you see, child of grace, that God has bought you back from the slavery block of sin and from the depth of sin and from suffering for your own sins in the lake of fire by the work of His Son, God has every right to say to you, this is what you should do. He has every right. People say, don't tell me what to do. I'm a red-blooded American. You know, know, I've got this independence about me because I'm an American. Shame on us when we come to the throne of grace and say such things. We should be saying, as Paul said, Lord, what would you have me to do? You have saved me, bought me, ransomed me, redeemed me, brought me back from nothing, less than nothing. Lord, whatever you say, there's no price greater than the price that was paid on Calvary. So there's nothing that I won't do to please you. That's the message that Hosea gave to the dying nation of Israel. And I think it's a relevant message today.